Uh, so I've been gardening for about 40 years. I started in my 20s when my husband and I moved from Atlanta to the country. And I love gardening. I've always loved gardening. So we went into um, uh, self-supporting work. We were at Wildwood. We were at Butler Creek. But always I've had a garden. And so a couple of years ago, maybe two and a half years ago, we retired from Butler Creek. And I have about a half acre garden now. And I love it. I just keep expanding and growing more. So I'm going to ask you a question. You can turn to each other and share so you get to know each other a little bit better. Is why do you want to have a garden? Okay, we'll take a couple minutes for that, and that's for you. Okay, I think we've about taken enough time. Hopefully you've learned something about each other while, uh, while we've been sharing. And so now I'm just going to go into the presentation. And as I said, hold your questions, but you can write those down and ask later. And so this, this presentation is supposed to be about how to start a garden, how to plant a garden. I think there's some tips in here that might be helpful even if you've been gardening for a while. You don't have to be a totally new gardener. Uh, but if you do think that this class might not be for you, they have the two-foot rule, and you can feel free to leave. It won't hurt my feelings. My presentation is on the handout, almost everything. And so if you want to catch a different presentation and download that handout, that's perfectly fine with me. So, okay, so we're going to start now, and I just want to start with Genesis um, 2.8, and the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And so we see, as we were told last night, if you were there for the presentation, uh, that, you know, God was a gardener. He planted a garden, and he intended us to be gardeners. And so uh, it's a privilege that we can partake in that creative process of creating food, and I remember when I first started planting a garden, how excited I was that I could uh, see, take this little bitty seed and plant it in the ground and get this huge plant that produced so much. It was such a blessing to me. I just want to start touching on some things that you need to consider. If you have not gotten a piece of land of your own and you are looking then uh, there are some things to consider. I'm just going to briefly go through this, some things I thought of. One is site selection. When you're looking for land, look for a good gardening spot while you're doing that, and there's things to think about. Uh, this is actually my husband clearing land. When we first bought our piece of property, it was, just, it was just raw land. There's lots of trees. We did have to cut down trees for the power line, and so we didn't take those stumps out, though. We planted a few trees. We were not living there then. And later we have cleared more and more. But we just left everything in. We plant around the stumps, around. We get all the roots that we can. But that's a process. It's taken, you know, all, a lot of time. And so we just keep planting around that. And uh, there are many obstacles when you go to find a, a site. But you can work around all of those. Uh, you want to make sure that you have a good sunny spot. Sun is essential for the garden, and most gardens need at least six hours of direct sun each day. Uh, my sister and her husband don't have much space. They do container gardening, and they barely meet that minimum at that, but they still get a good garden. So there's some things they do that uh, hel helps with that process of getting more sun for their garden. Uh, water is very essential. This is my garden. Last year, that's the corn that I planted, we did put in drip irrigation, but you've got to have some source of water that's close to your, your garden. Uh, it's very difficult 
if like we had a drought for almost two months in Tennessee, or about two months. And so I think I would have lost most everything if we had not been able to water our garden. And so some different options, if you have well water or city water, if you have a spigot that's somewhere close, I mean, we run hoses, ran hoses for quite a ways until we put in the drip irrigation. And, uh, but some people water from a spring, a stream. Uh, we have friends that use rainwater, a catchment system. But you've got to have some source of water generally. I know there is dry farming, but it's not the easiest thing to do. And uh, so here is, we ran from across this little road from our house to this, um, my husband put this in, and that's the source of a half acre. We did one, one system for the whole half acre, and we just cut things on and off to be able to water. And it, if it's close to your home, it's going to be better. If you have it far away from your home, you're not going to be able to see it every day maybe, or you may forget about it, you get busy, and you really need to check on your garden on a regular basis to be able to um, see. It makes it easier to transport things back to and from the garden. You can also look at the garden, which just gives me a mental lift if I just walk out there and see everything growing. Other considerations is drainage. Is uh, in the area where you're thinking of planting, is there a lot of standing water after rain? That's not good. Uh, you can work around it, but it's better if you have a place that drains a little better. I call perennial, I think that should have had, maybe it should have had two R's in it, I'm not sure, but perennial, pernicious weeds, kudzu, Bermuda grass, Johnson grass, bindweed, honeysuckle, poison ivy. There are others, I've dealt with quite a few of these and they're very hard to get rid of. So if you can choose an area that's not infested with those, you're gonna be better off. Bermuda grass to me is the very worst. Well, no, kudzu is the worst, I've dealt with that too. But Bermuda grass is a close second. <laughs> okay. Um, and slope, some slope seems fine, but if it's too steep, you're gonna get a lot of runoff. It's just very hard to um, keep things where they need to be. And type of soil, uh, usually you're stuck with whatever that area has, but something to think about too. Um, is it sandy, is it clay, is it rocky? And then direction and distance from shade trees, because that's gonna shade your sun if it's too close to buildings, or if you can get on the south side of those things, it's gonna be better. Uh, this was probably the second or third year that I gardened. That's me when I was young. And uh, we started our garden in Alabama. And um, I did raised beds, but I've done a lot of different kind of gardening over the years. And um, you need to choose the kind of garden that you want, what works best for you. What works in one situation may not be the best for another. And yes, uh, we're told a lot of ideals, and I'm sure all of those are good, but you have to find what works for you. And don't feel ashamed if you decide to just do traditional row gardening, that's fine. I have a friend that does row gardening. She has a beautiful garden with a lot of produce every year. They till it up, they mark it off in rows, and, and it's, a, it's a great garden, and she gets lots of produce from it. I've done all kinds of gardening, and I, uh, I found that I can get a good harvest from any of these types. These are my gardens at different times when I did do row gardening. And uh, we had great, great harvest from all of those. Rows are fine. Generally, if you're gonna do row gardening, you're gonna need uh, a tiller or something like that or have somebody plow it up for you because it would be hard to dig all that for rows if you're just doing it by hand. But you know, you could, it's just a lot of work. Uh, also raised beds, wide raised rows, uh, 
this was, these are also my gardens. That was me when I was at Wildwood many years ago. We did wide rows there. We just had somebody till it up and then I raked into rows. And this is when I was at Butler Creek and uh, did wide rows there. We tilled it up every year and did that. What does it mean by wide rows? Uh, yeah. Okay, so I'll answer at the end though. And so these are some questions that you need to ask yourself. If you decide you want to row garden, these are things you need to think about. How long do your rows, do you want your rows to be? How wide will your pathways be? That's important between the rows. What are you going to use to, to do that with? A tiller, a tractor, a wheel hoe, hand tools? And how much is that going to cost? Cost is always a factor because some of these methods can require a lot of buying extra materials or things in the beds. So those are things to think about. The raised beds work very well for me and I, I do like, I've come back to that. I've tried all these different methods, sometimes combinations of methods, but this seems to work best um, for me because you can just put um, mulch, nutrients where you want them. I use, I don't really buy a lot of things. I use organic materials that I can find or source free or very cheap. And so um, that's what I did. So last year we did fence a half acre where we are now. We finally got it all fenced. We have to have that. It's a good fence to keep the animals out. If you don't have that and you're out in the country, a lot of times you're going to lose. I just got tired of losing my crops to the wildlife. I felt like I was growing food for them instead of us. So, yeah, and some of you must have experienced that also. And so these are wide beds, and I took some time last spring and raked the whole half acre up, basically there's a little bit left, into four-foot four wide beds. You can do three-foot wide beds, four-foot, five-foot, 30 inches. A lot of market gardeners I know do 30 inches because it's easier to harvest. But I'm trying to save more space, so I do two-foot pathways so we can get through a little bit better, and then four-foot wide beds, and I have it planned out so that works very well for me but something different might work better for you and uh, and then these are when I was at Butler Creek these are some raised beds that I did there and we had the cold frames over it so that we could put plastic or row cover over it in the winter time you can also I think uh, these uh, smaller ways if you don't have a hoop house there are a lot of ways to protect your crops and then there, a big uh, one that people like a lot, especially when you're beginning, is square foot gardening. So you can take your raised bed and just mark it off in some way into uh, square feet. And they have charts and so forth. A lot of those are a little closer spacing than I like. But you can get a good idea and you can plan this out on paper. When I taught gardening at Butler Creek, uh, I'll show you a picture in a minute of our student garden where we marked those off. So here's some planning questions for you. If you were going to do raised beds, how wide will they be? How long will they be? Now length is important because, uh, you know, I did some 85 foot beds this year and I'm gonna divide them in two because you got a long ways to go to get around those. If you are, I, I can't jump over a four foot bed really well without hitting it. And so it's, it is a consideration. Well, they have sides, and if so, what kind? I don't put sides on mine. I just rake up the, the pathways, throw it into the bed, but some people put sides on, some people buy all the soil that goes in it, depending on your situation. And so that's something to think about. Are you gonna use the native soil? Or are you gonna buy soil for it? Uh, how wide will your pathways be? And I've done everything from very narrow, like a foot on up to three feet wide. 
and I settled on two feet. We can get through for the most part. Once things get big, sometimes it's hard still. But we can get through for the most part without mashing the plants and you know, you have a little space in there. And will your pathways be bare ground, grass, or mulched? The grass pathways now are called living pathways. And I've settled on that because uh, it's kind of guilt-free gardening to me. When I was trying to keep the pathways cleared with more narrow ones, I would go out. And I just felt guilty every day because there were weeds growing up in it. It's supposed to be bare. But I like the, the living pathways. So some people don't like it because it does tend to creep into the beds. So that's something to think about. But um, that's a whole different topic. I need to stay away from these other topics. Okay, and then will some beds include a trellis? so that you can do some vertical gardening, like for pole beans. Some people do squash. I've done all kinds of trellises with different kinds of uh, things, and they, they, they are very helpful to save space and get. My brother-in-law does that for sun. He has trellises, and that gets his plants above the level where the shade is so he can get more sun for his plants. And uh, what tools do you need for this? You, you can probably get by with... Uh, with just hand tools if you're doing a raised bed. And then how much will it cost? Um, that's an, always a consideration. Uh, this is at Butler Creek. I, this is one of the years I taught gardening there with the students. And we, I had them mark off and rake up all of these raised beds and we put uh, an eight foot trellis down the middle so they could do some trellising as well as growing others. And what I did with them, we did the square foot method. So we marked everything off into square feet and they, I had them plan out their beds on paper. And we had little squares with names of plants on it so they could move that around instead of having to erase so much. And so they could plan their gardens out. It worked very well. So this is a question if you're going to use trellises. How many trellises do you need? What are they going to be made out of? Do you want cattle panels, fencing? There's all kinds of homemade do-it-yourself trellises. But these are things you need to think about. Where will you put them? Are they going to be down the middle of the bed? Are they going to be on the, uh, the end of a bed, on the edge of a bed? Or you just want a row with a trellis in it? Lots of questions to ask there. And what will, what will they cost? And then this is an example of container gardening. And I said my sister and her brother-in-law, my brother-in-law do this. They don't have much space. They can move things around where they get the most sun. And, uh, and it works very well. So some of the questions you would ask with container gardening is how many containers do you want? Uh, what size will they be? Now these can be very expensive, inexpensive or very expensive. And so the fabric pots tend to be the least expensive and they're very widely available. And so those are a, a good option. That's what my, my sister and her husband are going to now is more of the fabric pots. And what soil mix will you use? You're probably going to have to buy some soil for that. You might can mix it with some native soil, but it has to be a little bit lighter, so you want to think about what kind of mix you want to use for that. Now, all these topics can be researched on the Internet. It's very easy to get information, and I've, I've learned a lot. I just Google it. Whatever it is, I ask the question and look at as many answers as possible. I watch YouTube videos. I had the students watch YouTube videos so they could get an idea of all these different methods of gardening and ways to um, hone their gardening skills. And then again, uh, where will you put them? And sometimes containers are nice mixed in with other gardening methods because you can put some at the end of a bed, get a, a few extra plants in with the container gardening. And how much is that gonna, going to cost you?
Okay, so the next thing we'd like to do, now that you've gotten all these considerations and you've made a decision what kind of garden you want, you want to consider what you're going to grow. And I suggest you, you start with what you like to eat because if you grow things because they're pretty or uh, they produce a lot or whatever and it's not something your family's gonna eat, well, you're gonna be give, maybe you can give it to the neighbors, but it's kind of a waste. On the other hand, sometimes if you grow new things you're not sure about, it can encourage you to eat that, that, um, that new crop. So that's a, another consideration. Which crops will save the most money for your food budget? That's a consideration. Uh, some things cost more in the store and they may be easily grown. So that's going to give you a lot of um, uh, help in your decision-making process. And then also, which plants are easiest to grow and best for your area? I mean, celery may uh, save you money and you may like to eat it, but if you're in the South, it's a little harder to grow. And so it's, easy, it's better to start with at least the things that are easiest to grow. And you can talk to neighbors, friends, look at guides for your area, and all those will give you some clues with that if you have not gardened before. And um, after considering these questions, then you should make a list. Now this can just be an informal list, just jot it down somewhere, the crops that you want to grow. We're not talking about varieties here. Um, just, just make a note, okay, I want to grow tomatoes, peppers, and squash. So you've got those three things, and then you can start with that. And this is, this is just the starting point for you to start researching. You're going to have to do a lot of research or experimentation on your own. A little research ahead of time helps a lot. And so this is something I made up. Uh, it's called, a, I just named it a tentative seed list. And this is for comparison. And you can also download this off of that um, handout web um, site that you go to. And so I actually used this this year. In the past, I've just um, made informal notes more. But I thought this is a good idea because you can quickly see, like, how many days to maturity. Well, if you have a short growing season and you're looking for a crop that will finish in time before your season is up or you're wanting to su uh, do succession planting, then uh, you can compare, uh, easily compare how many days it takes for that crop to mature. And there can be a wide variation. Tomato plants, you can get anywhere from like 45 to 95 days, I think. So that's quite a difference in, uh, in maturity dates. And so um, here you can put your crop, the different varieties you're considering, how many days. Also, I only do open pollinated plants because I like to save seed. And even if I'm not saving seed from it now, I hope to one day. And so I don't buy hybrids, but if you're doing both, and hybrids are easier for beginner gardeners because they tend to be a little bit easier to grow. But you can put what it is, um, spacing needs, do you need a trellis, size of produce. Now, there's a big difference in a two pound squash and a you know, 30, 40, 50 pound squash. And so what would your family eat? Um, we all love those big, uh, vegetables that just, you know, I get so excited. I grew, I've grown kushas and uh, squash, and, and they can get quite large. I had one 20-something pounds. A friend of mine had one 28 pounds. I think I had a volunteer pumpkin one year that was, it was 49 pounds. And you get so excited when you see those, you're like, wow. But then I think, what am I going to do with all of that? Because, you know, there are two of us, me and my husband. And so if I cook a 28-pound squash, 
I've got to either freeze it or dehydrate it. It's, it's going to do some, something. It's not going to, we're not going to be able to eat it before it's finished. And so I'm trying to restrain myself and go away from the, um, the bigger uh, vegetables to something that's more, you know, for a two or three day span, not, not you know, three week, two or three week span. And then colors, I also get excited about colors. They don't always grow as well when they're different colors, but you can compare that. And, and then something else I look at is uh, when you're comparing prices, if that's important to you, uh, how many seeds are in a package and what is the cost of that uh, per package and uh, is there shipping cost? Because that can make a big difference in how much you spend on your garden. Is how, you know, uh, some seed packages I've looked at cost less and there's more seeds in them. So it's a good, good method uh, of putting that down and you can make a comparison. Okay, so some information that you need to gather. You need to um, get an idea of uh, your spacing requirements. Do you have room? I mean, you can get bush cucumbers that take a very little space, or you can get ones that are vining that take a lot of space. The same with sweet potatoes. You can get bush sweet potatoes, or you can get vining ones. So you have to consider how much space do you need and are you going to try to save seed from that? If you want to save your own seed, and it's very easy, you want to get open pollinated ones. So it's going to come more true to the parent plant instead of a hybrid where you don't know what you'll get. Hybrids, for the most part, will sprout. They say you can't save seed, and you can, but you may not get what you're looking for. Uh, and then, you know, the colors, uh, make a comparison of those. These are all things from my garden. These are radishes. Uh, there's only two kinds in here, although they're different colors. I really like this variety, and I've forgotten the name of it. But it uh, makes a lot of different colors. This was, these were tomatoes that I grew one year, a couple of years ago. Sweet potatoes, last year I grew, maybe it was 18, 17 varieties of sweet potatoes. This was from the year before, where I had a few of those. And these are squash that I've grown uh, here, different varieties. So, in your information for comparison, uh, I think I've already mentioned that, I just talked about it. Other information that's helpful is taste. And that's very important to me, is that something that's going to taste good, like you like. Tomatoes can have quite a variety of tastes. Some are more bland, some are sweeter, some have more of an uh, acid sweet balance. And so you may, uh, you can read descriptions though and see what I look at YouTube videos on taste test, and you can see what people consider to be the number one in this group of, of tomatoes. And you can just read uh, descriptions. I just plug in the name of that variety, black cherry tomato description, and then a lot of information will come up and you can do a comparison that way to see not only how it grows and maturity of days and so forth, but also taste is usually there. And how hot or cold uh, what is the heat and cold tolerance for that vegetable that you're growing? Uh, in, for your climate, if you're up north, you may need something that's very cold tolerant, whereas in the south, it doesn't have to be so much so. So for your area, look that up. And this was my 2020 seed list. It was not on a, it was not on a chart, but you can see I wasn't totally complete in this, but I, I put on Chinese red noodle asparagus beans, this is where I uh, was ordering it from, 24 seeds for 
And I didn't do a comparison with other places. I just ordered, I think, from Southern Exposure in Baker Creek that year. But you can see I had that information basically that you, uh, you see on the chart. It's just a little easier if you have the chart. And as I said, you can download that if you want that to go by. You can alter it for your situation. Some of those things may not be important to you, and you can just take that column out, and you could use that for yourself. Uh, here's one that I started for this year. I'm sad to say that I have not completed mine because I was so busy preparing for this conference that I did not have time to complete my seed order. But uh, these are some, I'm very interested in growing different varieties of beans, and so I did a comparison here of some of the beans I'm looking at. I may end up ordering them all, I don't know. Okay, and I just wanted to touch on what does days to maturity mean. There's a lot of confusion over that. If you look at different websites, you're going to find different information. But basically, what I found uh, seems best is to count from the time when you see the first set of true leaves until harvest time. And some people count from planting time, but it can take a, a wide range of days for that to come up. So this seemed, seemed a better way. And then, or if you're transplanting, count from transplant time to when you, um, you get your first harvest. And I, I would say this is a rough guide at best. Uh, you're, it's probably not going to be exactly right, but uh, it's good for comparison. So if you put those things down on your tentative seed list, you can compare the number of days. And it gives you a rough guide to how long it's going to take for that plant to mature. And so uh, you can find that information on the plants, all on the seed packets. All seed packets have that information. So here, uh, frost tolerance, and then 20 to 45 days. This one says days to maturity, 70, 55 days. So on, somewhere on that seed packet will have days to maturity. Okay. Uh, how much should you grow? Well, that's going to be very individual, so I can't tell you exactly what you should grow or how much you should grow. But uh, these are things to consider. How much growing space do you have? If you have a very small garden space, then you're going to need to juggle which plants you want to put in that. So that's going to limit how much you can grow of each one. What about the size of your family? That's going to make a difference. You're growing for two people, four people, six people, eight people. It makes a difference. Do you want to preserve your harvest, or do you just want to eat it fresh? And so if you're going to preserve, it takes a lot more. Uh, there's a new gardener in our church, and they said they were going, she was talking about growing six tomato plants, and she asked me how many I'm growing. I said, well, I did 130 this year. Uh, that's quite a difference. Uh, but she's a new gardener, and she didn't know how much that would produce. But if you're going to, to preserve, as well as eat fresh and hopefully have a few to give away, you need to plant a lot more. And I won't tell you what, maybe in your area, uh, you know, you, you don't need to plant as much as somebody else might need to, depending on disease and these other factors. But that's something you need to consider. And you also need to consider how much time you have for gardening. If you plant a huge garden, even if you have the space and the desire, and you work full time, it's going to be a challenge. Uh, I've done it, and it's challenging to get that garden in, get your harvest and preserved and all those things. So time, so what you have to do is juggle all these answers to arrive at your personal perfect balance. It's not going to be the same for everybody. It's going to be quite different. Okay, and so my suggestion is if you're a new gardener, start small. 
and then expand as your knowledge and experience grows. And you can just keep adding beds or a bigger area or so forth. But it, you're going to get overwhelmed. If you plant too much and it's a new thing for you, you're going to get overwhelmed. And when the weeds hit, the heat hits, whatever, and it's going to be difficult uh, for you to, to maintain that. Okay, so target planting dates. This is very important to know when your plants need put in the ground or your seeds need put in the ground. And for every area, it's going to be different. And even little microclimates uh, within an area are different. And so one of the guidelines that I use that I really like a lot, some people say, oh, those are, those are not good. But for me, the, um, the University Extension Service guidelines are very good. And there's one for every state. There's an extension service in every state for agriculture. And so the guidelines might not look exactly the same, but they have a lot of good information. I'm going to show you an example of that in just a minute. Also, there are many online programs and, um, and book guides. You can talk to neighbors, friends, family who have successful gardens and, and just get an idea of when they plant. And then uh, online programs, I know that there's one here that Paul Dysinger started, Seed Time. I haven't used it. Um, I, I tend to like to do things myself because, I, one, our internet is very unreliable where we are. In the summer, it doesn't work very well. But also, I don't know, I just like to hold things. But some people are more computer people. And it's, I have a friend that uses Seed Time, and she loves it. She said it takes all the work out for her of deciding when to grow things. But... For me, it's all, you know, so there's whatever you decide to do. There are many other programs on the Internet, too. That's just one I know the name of. And, um, and then this is the guide, one of the guides that I go by a lot, Tennessee Vegetable Gardening. We're, I'm from Tennessee. And so here is the, uh, they have a table, and they have lots of growing information in there. But this is toward the end. They have a table that covers all the basic plants that, you, you know, most people would want to plant. And so you can see here it has spring planting dates. Now, Tennessee covers three growing zones. And so you have to kind of take that into consideration. Uh, you know, I wouldn't start mine quite as early as, as uh, April 10th, but maybe around more in the middle of this, maybe May, May 1st or May 10th, I might start mine. And then you have fall planting dates. We are in 7B. We used to be in 7A, but they just... I think it's very interesting. They just redid the zoning. And so we went from 7A to 7B and had the two coldest winters I ever remember uh, last year when it got a few degrees below zero where we were. And I think this morning it was one degree uh, in the near, a nearby town. And then they also have an idea of how much seed you would need for a 100-foot row, planting according to their guide, inches between rows. And a lot of these guides are for if you have equipment and stuff you want to get in the pathways, but these are good general guides if you're doing row gardening. And inches between plants, which is what more of what I use. And then planting depth, that's a good guide too. That one, this one is for Tennessee. Uh, here is one I picked up just to, for demonstration from Alabama. It's a little different, but it has basically this, and they even have cultivars here of ones that grow well in Alabama. So check out the one for your state. I think that it would help you in some way. And it also has planting dates here, planting dates for spring, fall, and you know some of the same information. Um, and then I do a guide I started doing last year, uh, target planting dates, planting schedule. 
And you see things in red and black here. This is a sample. This is not what I'm really using this year. I just changed one from last year and kind of made it so you can see. Um, but I do it on the computer. You can write it in and change it as you go. But I put my tentative planting date, my target planting date, and then I change it to black and put the actual planting date in. So if I have it set for February 15 and I don't plant it until February 30, then I would put the, the new date in and, and change it to February 30. But you could also put both in. You could redo yours so that you have space for your target and when you actually plant. But this is kind of nice to keep up with from year to year, too. And once you get this in place, you may not have to, to look, uh, look all that information up so often. You can just you know, go to your guide that you used last year. And, um, and so it is important to get things down on paper, though. So whether you use a computer, a calendar, a notebook, I've used notebooks before, I've used calendars, um, but get these, these things in mind somehow in an organized way so you can easily find it and find what you did. That's been very valuable to me to be able to look back and say, what did I do last year? Well, that did well. When did I get that in the ground? Was it May? Was it June? If you don't have it written down, you're not going to remember. You may think you will, but you won't. And so... Uh, that would, that's, a, that's a real help to do that. Um, plan for spacing needs. Um, I just wanted to mention, sometimes the spacing in the square foot garden plans, you can look those up if you want to do that, but they're a little tight to me. Um, where, where we are, we're in, you know, we get a lot of humidity and heat in the summer, and Tennessee has, is, I think, bugs like no other. Um, it's incredible how many viruses, bacteria, bugs, and insects of different kinds we have. And it seems like the plants do better if they get a little more airflow and uh, a little, uh, they get more nutrients, more water. It, it decreases your needs and uh, really, really helps a lot how they grow. But you need to get an idea of how many inches or feet plants should be separated by. And uh, if you're doing square foot, how many plants will fit in one square foot or how many rows will fit in one bed? I tend to not use square foot. I just have in mind, uh, my mind a general idea, and so I plant according to that. But I've been gardening a long time, so the square foot method might be a help to you if you're just starting. And keep in mind that tiny seeds get very large when they make plants. This is very easy to underestimate how much space you're going to need. And uh, also, this is good for comparison, too. I remember looking at a cauliflower variety I was thinking of growing last year, and I read some of the reviews in Baker Creek on it, and they said, this plant gets bigger than you can, you can think about, allow four square feet for one cauliflower plant. Well, I thought, I'm not going to grow that one. <laughs> That's a lot of space. And so I just skipped that one. It was too much. Um, and then also uh, the extension services I mentioned, but you can do an internet search. I think this is actually uh, from Iowa State um, Extension Service, but they just have some descriptions here. And so there's a lot of information you can find on this. And so I've already mentioned this, don't squeeze your plants too closely. They compete for nutrients and water. And so unless you have um, you know, a lot of time to keep them watered and you're buying fertilizers and so forth, they might do better not, uh, not, not spacing them too closely. And so I'm going to give you an example. My sweet potato bed, I do four foot wide beds 
and uh, I do two rows, I've set along two rows of sweet potatoes down. I do them one foot from the side and that leaves two feet in between the sweet potato rows. I grow a lot of sweet potatoes. We got uh, about 475 pounds last year, so that was a blessing. And, but I tried three rows in that bed, which technically you should be able to do, but I just didn't get the production from each slip that I do with two rows. And the vines tend to run over each other and uh, shade each other, and so I think that was probably more of the problem. Maybe just not enough room. Some of the sweet potato roots will go out quite far. And so, but by doing this, I can plan ahead how many slips I'm going to need. I start my own slips. And so for a 30-foot bed, if I do two rows down, I space those one foot apart from each other, I know I'm going to need 60 slips. And so you can plan that ahead of time. Plan what you're going to grow, how many plants you're going to need. So if you start your own seeds, you know how many to plant. And here's the picture of my garden. Uh, this is with a living pathway, so it's not a weedy garden. This is a guilt-free garden. I, uh, I let the grass grow as long as I can. And one advantage of that that I found is that we get a lot more pollinators and a lot more birds when I have started doing this instead of trying to keep it so immaculately clean. But these are two rows of sweet potatoes. This is not when they were first planted. They're a little bit along the way. This is two beds here. They're both about oh, 30 to 35 feet and one down there. And then I've got another one over there that's the same length and over here. And so this was, I don't know, a few weeks after I planted them. This is later in the year. And so you have to think about where are these plants going to go to. They, sweet potato vines get very long and you need a lot of space. And when you first plant this little slip, you don't really imagine that it's going to take that much space. So that's definitely a consideration. Um, arrange plants so that the taller plants are to the north, so as not to shade the shorter plants. And plant to the south side of trees and buildings. Um, this was an experiment I did this year, and actually it worked very well. I put tomatoes. I don't, I don't um, prune my tomatoes. I know pruning is the big thing, but I've always done cages. I just let them go up and over and wherever, and they do fine. And it saves me a lot of time, and I get a great harvest every year. So I did the, I just attached the tomato cages to the trellis. And then this is peppers on this side. And so this is the four-foot bed, wide bed with two feet on each side. And another thing I did here is I did put some, um, the Asian long beans just scattered out around here. And so it was really, uh, it worked very well. The tomatoes did not shade anything because they were to the north. If they had been on this side, the peppers would have been shaded a little bit too much. I did a few beds like that, and they didn't work quite as well. And Oh, here's with the beans, yeah, scattered down on that side. Okay, and then this is an experiment that did not work very well, and it's a lesson I've learned more than once. Uh, but... I think I showed you this picture in the beginning. You probably don't remember. It was when it was very uh, short. But this is a trellis with, the, uh, with green beans here, pole beans. This was um, bush beans all along the sides and on this end where I didn't have the trellis. This is okra. And this was a corn patch interplanted with squash and pole beans going up the corn of modified Three Sisters Garden. And what I found was uh, I just did not plant enough for the shade that this trellis and the okra together would cast. If Maybe if it would just been one of them, but the okra got huge. And so this area in here, just, uh, it just basically almost died out. I got a few beans off of it, but it was just too much shade for it. 
And so you've got to be careful about planting on the north. This was the north side of this. And then over here, it was too much shade for the squash. Uh, it did run out. We still got 525 pounds of squash, but it ran out from the corn and everywhere it could go. And so it took over this bean patch here. And so the squash just went totally berserk over here and we got a lot of squash, but it really cut the production of the beans, which I think I would rather have had the squash anyway, but it's a lesson learned. Okay, and then this is showing the squash going out from that side. Okay, now you're at the point where you need to draw your layout using graph paper and a pencil, uh, or you can do it on the computer, draw out your uh, planting areas and pathways, uh, use a pencil. I used to wear my paper out erasing, putting in things where, where I wanted it to go. Or you can also cut out little squares with the names on it and just move it around. That's another thing you can do. But it's really nice uh, to get it on paper and decide where everything is going to fit before you start planting. And my, uh, this is a sample plan. You can do this on graph paper, uh, but just um, have something. So even if you don't draw out, draw out grids, you can still have some kind of plan to, uh, I mean, you don't draw out grids in your garden for a square foot. You can still have some kind of plan of where you're gonna plant things. And write that in and uh, you know, kind of decide how much you can get in that space. Uh, these are some planning suggestions. Plan crops to be planted in greater amounts first. Ones that take up more space, that are taller, are the most important to you. I always plant, I plant a lot of sweet potatoes, squash, corn, uh, tomatoes, and those are, those are my main ones, I think. I may have left out something. But I put those in first in my garden, and then I plant everything else around that because you start planting, oh, I'll put greens here, and I'll put some cabbage here, and that and the other, and then pretty soon you think, oh, where am I going to put, well, I think, where am I going to put 130 tomato plants? So it's, you, you want to plan the bigger crops, the more important ones first. And uh, if you've got trellised plants, get those in so you know where those are going to be. And then uh, make sure your vines have room to run and then plant everything else around that. And I'm just going to show you some pictures. of so These are just ones I took off of the internet. And you can find bukus of these everywhere, lots of plans that uh, this give you some samples of what you, how you can do this. Some of these are quite pretty. Uh, they have some nice pictures people have drawn in or put in on the computer. I like this. Uh, I think a, a spiral-bound notebook would work better for me so you can take things in and out and add to, uh, but you can put other things. I, I do have a spiral-bound notebook that, not spiral-bound, but the, a binder. Okay, a binder where I can add to and take away and you can make notes from year to year and put your, your plans in. And just some more pictures. That was a cute garden, I thought. This is uh, some longer beds with more narrow pathways. And then this is a row garden drawn in and I thought this was very nice. Like I said, I have a friend that does a row garden every year and it's really beautiful. And so these are all, it's nice to, to get your plan in place. Uh, this is my garden layout. I've had to go away from the paper and I do it on the computer because this is just, I've got sections A, B, C, D, and E plus a high tunnel now and trying to draw all that on paper is just too much. So I just do it on the computer. I keep adding to and taking away from and uh, I can change it very easily and then I can print it at the end of the year and put it in my notebook and I can look at what it was last year and I just have, it's important to label every area. Uh, this is yeah, 
Uh, let me go back to that one. I'm sorry. Uh, and so I label every area where I'm going to plant, and then I have another plan that shows what I'm going to put in that bed. So this stays stable every year. And then I change my uh, plan for that bed every year. So you want to rotate some at least every other year, every three or four years to rotate would be better. And this was my rotational plan, 22, 23, 24. Some of these beds didn't exist uh, back in 22. Uh, in red are the ones I'm planning to plant. You can see I, I never got that in this year. I just never had time to do it. And so this is for 24 things I'm planting. The strawberries are already in and the garlic's already in. So, and then you have also questions like, are you going to start your own seedlings? Are you going to buy those? That's something you need to plan for too. You are going to be uh, more flexible with time and varieties if you start your own seedlings. It's very easy. I think there's a class here on how to start that. If you haven't done that before, I encourage you to attend that because it's, it's very easy to do and it will save you a lot of money. and get, It's a lot more fun to me. It's just more exciting to be able to choose different varieties. And also, I just want to mention intercropping. This is the process of growing two or more crops close to each other. So this also is my garden. This is sunflowers that I planted on this side of the bed. I planted watermelons on that side. So the watermelons could run under the sunflowers, have plenty of space. Of course, they went outside the beds too, but that worked very well. That was a good interplanting experiment that I did. And you can find a lot of, I just wanted to go back to that last um, sentence, so look for research-based information. You can find a lot of information on what to plant together and what not to plant together, but not, all of it is not research-based. It's better to have something where you've actually got some science behind why this grows well together or why it doesn't. And I do check all of that before I experiment with these different combinations. And uh, again, this was the interplanting. It's just a picture. I showed you that one before, I think. And this was the Three Sisters Modified Garden. Uh, that was somewhat of a, uh, a good experiment. I mean, it was a good experiment, but it was somewhat of a success and somewhat of a failure in ways. I found that the squash got so big uh, that I couldn't walk through the corn patch and really look at it like I like to. I love walking through a corn patch and just watching it grow. And after a while, I couldn't even get in there. It was just so overgrown with the squash. And then the squash, I got really nervous. I was praying about it. Lord, please help me to get squash. I pray this won't be a failure because I was afraid there was so much shade I wouldn't get squash. But it did, it all made its way out and made squash. But it was just too much in there. So I, I wouldn't do that again unless I had a bed, like the sweet potato bed, where it was just out by itself. But this corn patch was, you know, many beds across. And so it was just too much shade for the, the squash. It just had to to run out and do its thing out in the pathways. And um, succession planting means to follow one crop with another and to get the most produce from the same space. So for example, I'm just gonna touch on this. If you had spring planted potatoes, they're usually harvested in June or July in Tennessee. And after the harvest, then I plant bush beans, which would have time to finish before frost. So you can get two crops from the same space something to think about. And I just want to end with this quote on, from Education on page 219. No line of manual training is more, of more value than agriculture. It was God's plan for man to till the earth. So if you are a gardener, you want to be a gardener, this is God's plan for you. It's God's plan for all of us. Amen. And um, this is just me using a wheel hoe and me using the tiller over there. And uh, 
My husband wanted me to put this in. I'm laying off cornrows here. It's hard work with that thing, by the way. <laughs> okay, so that's it. Okay, so we have time now for some questions. And actually, I ended about right. So um, do you have any questions to ask? Uh, usually, if you order, well, you can make sure if you absolutely are worried about it, you can order organic seeds for most places. But typically, you're not going to get genetically modified seed uh, from the catalogs and so forth like that. Those are, those are for the big farmers, the big ag, and they have to sign contracts. They're not even available to the public. If you want to make sure it's not contaminated, you can order uh, organic or you can order from reputable seed companies. I order from Baker Creek, from Sand Hill Preservation, from Southern Exposure Seed Exchange. Yes, sir. Did you have a question? Bug prevention? How do you kill them? I don't even care if it's a chemical. What do you do? I don't use any chemicals in my garden other than occasionally I have used fertilizer. I do whatever I need to get food. I try to put organic, uh, natural things in. But for bug prevention, we have a lot of bugs in the south. I have found that if you try to make your garden so that it's welcome, it welcomes pollinators and um, birds and that they, they take out a lot of insects. And if you don't do a lot of monocropping, like I did have corn, a lot of corn together, but I also had squash and beans in with it. It seems like the bugs don't get quite as bad that way. Um, the only thing we really have a problem with is the Japanese beetles, and we just hand pick them. We knock them into a bucket of soapy water. Um, I'm trying to think. I haven't had any problems with many things other than that since I've started gardening more like this to encourage lots of lots of birds. We have a, we had a phenomenal number of birds in our garden. They do take a little bit of the berries and stuff, but it's not it's negligible. I figure they need something for the work they do. So, yeah. Did that answer your question? Okay. Uh, the, the Well, then it's going to block the afternoon sun, but you can do it like that. I have trellises and beds running both directions. So if I'm planting in beds that run uh, north-south, then I would plant on the west side. If I'm, if I'm uh, planting on a trellis that runs east-west, I would do it on the north side. But you are going to, uh, to block some sun in the afternoon if you plant on the west side with a taller. So it depends on what you've got with it and if it can tolerate that. Okay, yes? So what's, the, what's the difference between the raised bed with no wood around it and just planting in rows? Is it because you're adding soil to the T Typically, if you plant in rows, and it doesn't have to be this way, but typically in rows, people retill it every year. And so you just re restructure your rows every year. The Ruth Stout method, I read her original book a long time ago, and she, um, she did rows, but she marked the rows and she didn't move them. So basically they were like very, what we would call very narrow beds with pathways in between, and she just mulched the whole thing. 
But with beds, uh, I, I leave them more, I have moved them, but typically you would leave them in place and you don't, um, you don't uh, walk on those and you, uh, you can just keep adding your mulch, your uh, organic fertilizers, whatever you're doing to the bed instead of fertilizing the pathways. Because if you do a row garden and you retill it every year, you're adding, maybe you're adding your, your mulch, your, um, your organic fertilizers, your bulk fertilizers, whatever, to just the rows, but then you till that up and the rows may not be in the same place. So basically, you can't confine that uh, enrichment of your soil to one area like you can with a bed. You're just, it, to me, it's kind of a waste in a way. I've gardened both ways and it all works, but I like the beds better in the long run. Let me get him and then you. Uh, domesticated farm bird that helps with insects, is there? I don't know. <laughs> no, we just encourage as much. What I did, uh, you may have heard of Nomo May. Uh, I didn't even hear about that when I did this, but I told my husband this year, I said, don't mow anything in the garden. Don't weed eat it. We weed eat. I said, don't weed eat anything down until we absolutely have to, until I get ready to plant that area. I want to uh, encourage more birds, more seeds. And, uh, and we did that, and we had such a variety of birds that I, I really think that they did make a big difference uh, in, in the, the bug population, but it was a variety of birds and they all eat different things. So I don't know, I'm still experimenting with that and reading on it, but it's a good question. Um, yes, yes, sir. Oh yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't explain that. So. Yeah, yeah, where, where we are, we get, we, it gets about overhead but you still, not quite, and so you still get some shade to the north of that. So I'm sorry I didn't, add. thank you. Yes, ma'am. Uh, I think it does encourage pollinators. Uh, okay, and I haven't researched this thoroughly. I usually do plant marigolds, and uh, they do um, have uh, a scent that they put off that discourages some, uh, some things that you would not want there. And, um, I think interplanting uh, these different things just encourages uh, better growth. I don't know exactly why. I know plants do put out ex exudates from their roots that encourage more uh, growth of the the, uh, um, the the little things in the soil, microorganisms in the soil and so forth, and they all grow better together. Marigolds put out, I read years ago, there was a study done, they put out something from their roots and it prevents root nematodes. And so that's a, a good thing with that. I'm sure there's other things too. Do a little research on what to plant and not plant together. It does make a difference. Yes, sir. I, I don't let any of mine rest. That might be a good idea if you could just plant a cover crop in that time, but we need the whole space to be able to grow enough food. My goal, my personal goal is to be able to grow enough food that we could feed ourselves for a year without buying pretty much anything other than, you know, little extras. But um, it, I don't know that I'm going to get a three-year rotation on everything, but I, at least two years is good, and I'm trying for three. Yes, sir. You, you know, I don't, I don't do container gardening, but I don't think so. I think that um, I think you can amend and use the same soil. I'll have to ask my brother-in-law that question because he does a lot of. Amen. Well, you can put other. Amendments can be different things. They can be bulk fertilizers. They can be ones that you source from the woods. I use a lot of leaves. I grow out. I go out and we rake leaves. We have a chipper or shredder, and so we shred leaves up and put in, or I put them whole on top as a mulch. Um, 
there are a lot of things that you can add. You can just get around. We add wood ash a lot of times instead of buying lime. Or it could be bought amendments. You can, you can have soil tests done and see what you need and you can buy those amendments. It just depends. But no, I don't think you need to change everything out. I think you would just need to amend some. Yes? Okay, I've got that in my seed class on Friday, but let me tell you. Um, heirlooms just means that they're, they are uh, basically at least 40 to 50 years old. A lot of these are passed down from generation to generation, maybe hundreds of years old, but some are newer. And people don't really understand that a lot of the open pollinated seeds that they're making now are actually from hybrids, and they stabilize them and make them open pollinated. And so uh, there's nothing wrong with a hybrid seed other than, to me, that you just can't get what you're looking for necessarily when you grow it. Um, I'm naturally hybridizing my own uh, gardening. There's something called landrace gardening that I'm very interested in now. So I'm letting a lot of things cross, and it makes stronger plants. You can choose which grow the best, what the taste, which ones taste the best, and so forth. Look up landrace gardening. It's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, I don't, uh, hybrids could be organic or, yeah, the heirlooms could be organic or not and the, just plain open pollinate. Open pollinate just means it's a newer, more newly stabilized plant and it could be organic or not. There's nothing wrong with either one. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's not a big thing. Yeah, those are, I, I have not used cover crops much because the time my crops come out in the fall, it's, it's pretty much too late to do a lot of the cover crops unless you have extra space. But yeah, those are, those are great things to do. Red clover puts nitrogen in. I think you have to turn that into the ground at a certain point. I haven't done a lot of it, but you're right, yes. Anybody else? I think it's time for us to end. So let me just end with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for um, just so much available to us today. Teach us, Lord. Teach us how to grow better. We want to uh, not only grow uh, better food, but we want to grow closer to you, Lord. And we thank you for all the, the things you do for us, your many blessings. And we thank you especially for the blessing of being able to participate in the creation of process through agriculture. In Jesus' name we pray. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.